Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Danielle Detweiler is a multidisciplinary performance artist, actor, and filmmaker. The Atlanta native has explored how lines are blurred in the labor of black women And through her art, she creates a framework for navigating what she calls a Black Americana chaos. Danielle Deadweiler has a lead acting role in the movie Jane and Emma, which confronts the exclusion of African Americans from the Mormon church in its earliest days. We'll hear her take on the background of that story later in the program. First, Beethoven and Bluegrass may seem an unusual title for a concert, but not for the Emory Chamber Music Society of Atlanta. Ensemble director Will Ransom is always seeking ways to expand the audience, And for this Saturday's concert, Bluegrass meets classical with music of fiddler Mark O'Connor. Both artists join me now via Zoom. Welcome to City Lights. Wonderful. Thank you, Lois. This is Mark O'Connor here, and uh, thanks for having me on your program. Looking forward to being at Atlanta and uh, at the Emory University. Thanks, Lois. We're just so thrilled to have Mark and Maggie coming down. Really just legendary musician, multi-instrumentalist, composer, and really unique. And this is going to be such a fun program. Indeed. Will, before we talk with Mark, would you tell us why the works on this program complement each other? Absolutely. So I grew up in Nashville, and I've known about Mark and his work for a long, long time, and have just been such a huge fan of his and watched his development, which has just been really incredible. Part of a kind of a small group of amazing musicians who weren't originally based in classical music, but have gone on to do extraordinary things. I I think of Mark as the bluegrass equivalent of George Gershwin, who was the perfect synthesis of jazz or popular music and classical. And Mark's doing the same kind of thing uh, with this extraordinary 
truly American music of bluegrass and taking it places it's never gone before in the most wonderful ways. And then, of course, as a, a player as well, he's just the ultimate virtuoso, and not just at the, the fiddle or the violin, but of course started on guitar and pretty much can play whatever he lays his hands on. <laughs> it's pretty extraordinary. As you said, I, I always try and find ways to bring more audiences in to hear the classical canon that, of course, I'm focused around. But like the famous saying is, you know, there are only two kinds of music, <laughs> the good kind and that other kind, and we only play the good kind. So Mark has written uh, some string quartets, and so we'll be starting with a Beethoven string quartet played by the Vega Quartet, our quartet in residence. couple of movements of Mark's quartet number two, a tremendously challenging work for the musicians, but uh, incredibly wonderful to listen to as well. And then the second half, uh, Mark and Maggie will do their thing. And at the end, uh, they'll all come together, the Vega and the O'Connors for Mark's incredible Appalachia Waltz. Mark, you, your wife, and your music we see are featured on this program. Let's start with the string quartet number two. The piece is subtitled Bluegrass. It begins as a refined sounding contemporary classical piece. to five minutes into the opening movement, we hear that bluegrass inflection. It sort of tiptoes up on us. Did you mean for that to flow into kind of a surprise, or is that just the organic course of the music? Well, I love how you describe that. Basically, what I do a lot, I'm I'm loving the the idea that my music gets to be paired with uh, Beethoven because Beethoven is uh, one of my favorite composers, and really an inspiration for my own string quartet compositions. And one of the things that Beethoven is known for is taking 
uh, an interval or a, a rhythmic motive and developing it. And so what you hear a lot, in, especially in uh, my string quartet, is um, these kind of bluegrass rhythms permeate throughout, but create a journey of music. The other thing that I was testing, and the string quartets really kind of finalize this idea, is that no matter what I've written or played, people will always find a connection to Americana. And I, I really enjoy kind of pushing the envelope to see how contemporary my compositions can get, but always that really sturdy thread that runs through the music into fiddling and American fiddling in particular. And so really this quartet really brings in the rhythmic musical language of fiddling and bluegrass. And then uh, the journey develops into all these layers of Americana both contemporary and a nostalgic look back into how I bring in the actual original language um, into the string quartet setting. And that's very evident from the get-go in the second movement. It's playful, very much within a fiddling style. I'm struck by the virtuosity of the piece throughout. This is a work that's very technically demanding. Is it fair to say you enjoy giving the musicians quite a workout with this piece? Yes, and another inspiration for um, my string quartets is uh, Bela Bartok. Not only his use of folkloric uh, materials and inspiration, but completely original in Bartok's writing. I wanted to do something similar from Americana perspectives. And the idea that uh, Bartok also pushed the players to the technical brink um, is something I really wanted to especially do. Um, one of the things that I'm sure Lois, you know, and of course, Will knows being in the classical music seen for, for so long is that when you bring new music to the stage with say orchestra or chamber orchestra, you don't get much rehearsal time. So there's not a, a lot that you can really pull off in the way of really pushing the musicians to the, the technical limits and you run out of rehearsal time. With a string quartet, um, my hope was that Folks like the Vegas Ring Quartet, a permanent quartet, will have the music for a while, be able to rehearse it to the point where they feel comfortable with the technical demands of the piece, and then it will be successful in performance. So I saved some of my most complex writing for the string quartets and the piano trios that I've composed. 
Well, the Vegas certainly will rise to the occasion. You know, I love hearing you acknowledge Bartok. Mark, the first few phrases of your second string quartet reminded me of Bartok, but I didn't want to say that to you because I didn't want you to think that it was derivative or that I thought it was derivative. But hearing you acknowledge Bartok's influence on you is not only validating for me, but it also brings out how each of you turned to your native vernacular to find your own voice, his with the authentic Hungarian folk melody and yours with Americana. I also love hearing Mark talk about his work this way because, of course, Beethoven also famously said that he reserved some of his most, not only difficult, but most expressive and intimate music for the string quartet form. So I think there must, there is something very special about a string quartet that can do things that a whole symphony orchestra or say a pianist uh, cannot do. And it brings, brings all sorts of incredible musical experiences to the musicians and to the listeners. If you just tuned in, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitz, speaking with Will Ransom, director of the Emory Chamber Music Society, and fiddler, composer, Mark O'Connor. We're discussing Beethoven and bluegrass. Movement three has the feel of an Americana ballad. It's very lyrical, Mark. I felt like this movement easily could have words. Yes, this is loosely based on uh, Bill Monroe's music, uh, who's the father of bluegrass. And um, yeah, there's something about some of his themes. For instance, where I have the, all the instruments going to harmonics, that reflects kind of like a you know a classical quartet interpretation of the high lonesome sound of bluegrass singing. So I'm glad that you pick that out of the music, that movement in particular, because it does come from an inspiration of uh, bluegrass vocal music as much as uh, fiddle playing. <laughs> and movement four brings us a hoedown. Is it okay to call it a hoedown? It feels like a hoedown. Yes, what in particular my uh, second quartet and also my third quartet uses a hoedown 
as a finale. And I'm thinking about a hoedown as the, the ultimate, you know, centuries old celebration uh, that comes at the end of uh, a hard day of, of work and labor in the fields. And, uh, and in the case of, of African-American slaves, it was uh, a time where they could uh, play music and instruments and share this new musical uh, language that they were developing, this hoedown, put the hoedown after a long day's work of slave labor. There's this uh, interesting kind of connection of American music bringing the, the diverse elements of culture together through music and for a moment of celebration where there was a true sharing of each other's culture and a development of American music culture. And of course, most of the Bach suites end with a joyous dance as well, with a, a jig, a jig. Exactly. It's very gratifying to hear you bring out that connection to the African-American contribution to Americana music because too often it's either been erased or simply never visible, never acknowledged. And not only does the hoedown have that cultural origin, but Mark, I felt like there were blues sounds within this bluegrass quartet. Was that intentional? Yeah. Like a blue note within your bluegrass. Yeah, absolutely. If you look at Bill Monroe's music, the father of bluegrass, as it is quoted, um, I knew him and played with him and learned from him as well as some of the other patriarchs of bluegrass music. They will all refer to blues musicians as a key uh, inspiration to develop bluegrass music. And so without the blues, you would not have bluegrass, but I would actually easily go and extend that. Without the blues, you wouldn't have any kind of American music at all. (laughs) So there's these kinds of staples that I'm constantly referring to when I compose my string quartets, and blues would be one of them. The African-American spiritual is another, and I think that is something that we're also hearing in the slow movement, uh, especially of my compositions, this kind of melodic grace that brings a feeling of ascension and overcoming in hopes of a better tomorrow. Then you've got the other staples, uh, which include the hoedown as well as uh, swing. So there's some you know, ragtime and swing elements all the way through this music too, and it's all interconnected. Oh, it's just a wonderful piece. Mark, your music making is a family affair in various ways, and for this concert, your wife Maggie will perform. For newcomers, for those who've never heard your duo, how would you describe your work together? Well, playing with my wife, Maggie, we've been married for seven years and our relationship immediately began as a musical one. And then we ended up being married <laughs> soon after. Uh, so we just love playing together. And it's, it's just amazing what we bring out in one another 
And it is a very, very beautiful, comfortable, and musical, artistic collaboration. And in many ways, I'm able to do, do in this duo setting with Maggie, what I've always really enjoyed about being a soloist is that I feel unencumbered and I'm, I'm not closed into a particular direction or style or even instrument. After years of playing solo by myself um, in concert, I started to getting, you know, get a little tired of that. And so I started forming groups and my groups um, historically, like most groups, have to have some kind of musical direction or it's just really incredibly difficult to harness. And I don't know if it's successful artistically if you put a group together and then you're going in every single possible direction like I can as a soloist or in my solo career in general. But in this duo setting, we can cover a lot of ground stylistically. So you'll, you'll be able to hear all my arrangements, whether it's you know two violins together or myself on guitar or mandolin. And I'm also able to cover a lot of materials from uh, the kind of the, the depth of my career. Um, you'll hear pieces that are fairly new and then you'll hear other pieces that go back 30 and even 40 years. Um, so the audience really gets um, a full plate of O'Connor music in this duo setting with Maggie. Mm. Well, I love the quote from Duke Ellington you referenced, and I know Louis Armstrong would say something very similar about there only being two kinds of music. I was thinking of Mark as a genre-bashing musician, but after this conversation, it's really more genre-bridging. Do you feel like you're bridging more than you're bashing? Well, it'd be great to, to have Will comment on that because he's, I love his perspective. He's programmed me before, um, a few times at some of his other events around the country. So he's seen what kind of variety that I can bring to the concert stage and the same audience ends up liking it all. It's one of those things where, well, you know, on paper you're thinking, well, there's going to be certain elements of the audience that's going to really like this kind of material better. And then the other material they'll, you know, they'll try to get through it or sleep through it or whatever. You know? Like, <laughs> <laughs> Unlikely. <laughs> but it, en it ends up being that it's, I've really worked hard to build bridges. And I like, um, I've actually named one of my albums Crossing Bridges. And I'm going to name my autobiography that Crossing Bridges. And I think that really sums up a lot to do with my career and how I'm, how I'm bringing in elements of 
folk fiddling and jazz and classical, especially, of course, I tip my hat to the European classical composers, but I always champion the American classical folks. Will had already mentioned Gershwin, and you've mentioned Duke Ellington. And then, you know, uh, of course, Ives and Bernstein and William Grant Still, Copeland, and so many others that I, I really love to be programmed with as well, uh, because the American classical persuasion of our music, I think, has been undernourished. Even with some of the great successes that I've mentioned, uh, we still could have you know more of that. I want to be somebody that is contributing and known for contributing to American classicalism. Oh, I think you have done your fair share. Can I chime in one more time and just say that I've I've heard a lot of amazing concerts and musicians and and music in my life. I mean, from for pianists from Horowitz to to Lang Lang or. I, I also love jazz as well, from Maynard Ferguson to Wynton Marsalis, or just an incredible range of wonderful players from Bill Monroe to, to Chris Thiele. But the single most exciting, absolutely thrilling concert I've ever heard in my life was Mark and his family band out in Juneau, Alaska, a couple of years ago, where I was running the Juneau Jazz and Classics Festival. And that evening still rings in my head. Uh, again, just the extraordinary music making uh, and the extraordinary virtuosity at the same time and the pure joy and love of music and of giving that music to the audience. Emory Chamber Music Society Artistic Director Will Ransom with composer and fiddler Mark O'Connor. Their Beethoven and Bluegrass concert tomorrow at Emory Schwartz Center is sold out, but you can still attend an event with Mark O'Connor this afternoon at four. The Grammy Award-winning artist will give a free master class you can attend in Tharp Hall of the Schwartz Center on the Emory campus. Masks are required. Admission is free. Up next, a conversation about the film Jane and Emma and the exclusion of African Americans from the Mormon Church. You're tuned to WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. For 146 years, 
Mormons excluded African Americans from the most sacred rites of the Latter-day Saints Church. The 2018 film Jane and Emma confronts this grim past head-on. I spoke with the actor Daniel Deadweiler, who portrays Jane ahead of its release, and she began by explaining who Jane Manning was. Jane Manning was a woman of fierce conviction. She was one of the first African Americans that was a part of the church. Uh, She and her family moved from the Northeast to Nauvoo, Illinois, to be a part of the church. It was something that came to her in a vision. And her family followed with her to this place. And she came upon the prophet Joseph Smith. She said she saw him in a vision. But when she she got there, she knew who he was. And she just wanted to be, her and her family wanted to be with the community to, to make their trek there. Because God told her to. And, you know, with all things that that are given to you in this kind of spiritual, intuitive nature, there will be challenges. And so her family and her endure a lot of uh, racial strife, physical strife, and the trek to get there. We're talking about the 1840s, (laughs) you know. Although she was born free. They were, they were. They were born free. Um, But they still encountered that social climate, that the treachery of the time. And once they arrived, they endured more. So, so this film is exploring that, that racial strife during that time, uh, being a part of LDS and, 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 and the Prophet Joseph Smith and how their relationship affected her and the relationship affected uh, Emma Smith, his wife. LDS, the Church of Latter-day Saints is the acronym. Now, had you ever heard of Jane Manning before? Hilarious, I did. You did? Her her whole name was uh, Jane Manning James, but prior to getting married, Jane Manning. Uh, very, very quick, like little, you know, Wikipedia, Google, something came upon me one day, and then I just, you know, you audition for a film, you don't know what's going on, you know, you, and then you get the job and you, you start digging, and I'm like, oh, I, I've encountered her before. Wow. But once you, you know, this is what somebody actually put on Facebook, Danielle, um, uh, deals with women who are unknown and I was like huh, here I go again <laughs> but Jane she is um I did know her and that's so funny I say I did know her because I had to there's so much more to her but she's very a, little information physical resources that could help you with that but she does have a small diary where she talks about her experience which is crucial to this production because The story, the screenplay is entirely based on her diary, isn't it? So it's her diary and some of, you know, the recollections of M. Smith and and the Prophet Joseph Smith. There are different documents that are available that that, that were given to me as well and um, my co-stars to to dig into. It was like you get a big old Google Doc full of information. You're like, what am I supposed to do with this? (laughs) (laughs) But you dig as much as you can. And and so she, she has less than them, but she does have a particular document where she she drives home the the visions that came to her, why she did what she did, and, and why she fought literally for the rest of her life to be sealed to the prophet uh, Joseph Smith's family and why she stayed in a, a faith that did not receive her the way um, the prophet received her. Which is 
difficult to understand, although this movie goes to great lengths to try and show just how complex that was. Yeah. Because there was such factionalism. The film is set against tremendous strife within the Latter-day Saints movement and opposition to its founder, Joseph Smith, is very strong. We learn that Joseph Smith has no prejudice against black people. In fact, at one point in the film, he says... To curse the Negro is to tempt damnation. Why don't we know that the founder of the Latter-day Saints did not believe in excluding black people from the rights? You know, so many questions as to why certain kind of narratives are muted uh, as opposed to others. Um, He actually ran for president or sought to run for president on an abolitionist platform. I did not I would know dare that. say that that could potentially have influenced him <laughs> yeah. and, and people's perceptions of, of, of him and wanting to see that narrative be elevated. Yeah, I mean, that's an essential quality of why he probably was not valued or pushed forward in that type of way. And so this film is about his murder, not purely his murder, but the after effects of his murder, because people, there was a mob that came to the jail that he and his brother were in, and they killed him. But for people who may not know much about the Mormon church, about the Latter-day Saints movement, we know of bits and pieces, you know, Mm -hmm. I know there was this nastiness. Um, I think Brigham Young University right. wouldn't allow right. African-American basketball players or any athletes. And Danielle, the film was produced by women who are Mormons, correct? Yes, yes. What was your reaction then when you first heard about this story? Did you have any question about its truth? (laughs) I had all the questions. (laughs) I had all the questions. I I mean, I jumped in with a short notice. I was on another short film, and they called me, and they said I got it, and I was like, oh, well, I got to be out there, you know, in two seconds, really. Um, And and you only have so much information before you start. And then, like I said, they gave me this huge Google Doc. And so you want to say yes to a lot of things. I don't know if... uh, I wouldn't say everything is completely factual, like, but we did have um, historical experts on on set at times, and uh, a lot. And we're talking about people who have been dealing in the development of this story for over two years, and two um, this film, this film particularly, yes. and you know, a group of people, uh, well, particularly uh, Tamu uh, and Zandra were two black female producers on the film who have just been doing different projects to push Jay Manning's story forward. Are they Mormons? Uh, they are. They are practicing Mormons. They actually come from Atlanta. So <laughs> that was, you know, th- those connections were um, were linking and sparking all kinds of uh, discussions. And, you know, just they were they were the heart and soul of the historical information for me, um, looking into a black woman who was a part of the Mormon faith. You know, the aesthetic of her hair, the the dynamic of her dress and the dynamic of like engaging with family. All those things were 
imperative. So we had a we had a huge, beautiful community that was pushing for um, accuracy from the top to the bottom. Okay. Yeah. Well, obviously, it's a period piece. And I was hoping you could tell us a bit about your preparation as an actor <laughs> for the role of an African-American woman in the 1840s. Oh, man, Lois, I had no time. I had no time, um, like li- literally about three to four days to dive into uh, maybe, what, 20, 30 40 pages of of documents and not just on myself but on excuse me not just on Jane Manning but on uh, the Prophet Joseph Smith and on Emma Smith and and really digging into what it meant to exist at that time (laughs) it's some pretty remarkable stuff that Jane and her family do right like I mean, I don't want to give away oh, the entirety this, yeah. of the film, but I mean, it's accessible via uh, via Google or whatnot. But you know, they traveled from Connecticut to Nauvoo. There is no train, right? That's <laughs> Nauvoo is southern Nauvoo, Illinois. Southern Illinois, like there's no train to get there, so they weren't allowed to get on this boat, uh, and and Jane lost all her clothing. Oh, that's so heartbreaking. It was. They were born free. They were coming born free. from mm-hmm. Connecticut, couldn't get on a boat in Buffalo, New York, mm-hmm. and still dealing with this terrible prejudice, despite the fact that they were free and welcomed by Joseph Smith yeah. and his wife Emma. We have a clip of Jane's reckoning after experiencing some of the horrific things she does. Let's hear it. Why is this happening to me? I don't understand what you want from me. I don't. I've been trying so hard. I'd like to believe that this is right. That I'm where you want me to be. That this is your church and I'm your child. Because it's too much pain, Lord. Too much suffering. Blocked out any joy. Leaving me hollow. I don't know what you want from me. Is there no blessing for me? It was a stunning performance, Danielle. Thank you, Lois. (laughs) I can imagine the emotion that went into it and and her reckoning. And yet, she stayed. Despite never being allowed to receive her temple endowment, Mm Why did Jane remain a devout Mormon? That's an interesting question because it's something that we're dealing with presently. Why? What is it about black women's conviction and faith and steadfastness to communities that aren't necessarily wholly supportive of them? Um, she, she knew what was for her. 
right? You 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 stick to what is for you, and I that's all I can that's all I can can cling to. You know, um, I think about my mother, I think about my grandmother, I think about my sister, I think about you know my community of women here, and then you just continue to open the webbing up, and these are people who have to. You, you you're connected to something bigger than you and that's exactly what this is for Jane Manning this is bigger than her this is about bringing her family it wasn't just her vision right she could have just went on her own but she said I'm bringing you all with me this is this is something this is a fire in me and I have to I have to do this so it she it's a it's about a, a faith to the people to your people other than a passing remark from Emma about the other wives, we don't hear much about the Mormon practice of polygamy. Mm-hmm. And Joseph Smith did have other wives. Yes, he did. As an artist <laughs> who dedicates much of her work to social justice and feminism, do you wish there had been more attention on screen to the polygamy issue as well as the racial injustice? Um, you always want to get to the heart of something, right? You want to get into the layers and the complexity of it. I'm not totally sure, you know, because that was something that was very connected to Emma's storyline, though Jane was uh, questioning it. She was like, are, are you okay with this? And there is a challenge for uh, Emma Smith to, to, to deal with that situation. He had upwards of what five or six um co-wives and 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 I don't think that was something that Emma was completely receptive of though she stayed though she had to didn't have to but she wanted to remain connected to Joseph Smith and the film does delve deeply into the racial dynamic you know what is that relationship for Jane being you know in this you know sisterhood kind of sister brotherhood with Joseph Smith and people outside of people in the church and outside of the church having commentary about that and not receiving her the way that he does so we the film delves into how he dealt with those people how Emma dealt with it and those challenges and the resistance that Jane gave as well The film takes on racism, religion, and gender issues, mm-hmm. which are lightning rods in any oh, situation. They just to be. <laughs> <laughs> but there's even more baggage when one considers the legacy of the Church of Latter day Saints. Were you concerned at all, Danielle, that this movie might? be used as an apologist's defense for Mormons? Uh, you're always concerned in how something is being positioned, but I it's I at least look at it as a conversation starter, for sure. I don't want to, this to be like, oh, well, there we go, and this is the end all be all, and we're, we're feeling good about what we're doing. No, we are beginning the dialogue, because prior to, it wasn't happening. Uh, the way that it should. So I've, I look at this as um, an impetus to to keep talking. Actor and multidisciplinary artist Danielle Deadweiler. She portrays Jane in the film Jane and Emma. It's streaming on Amazon Prime, Vudu, and Pluto TV. After a quick break, a conversation with John Oates of the duo Hall and Oates. 
They're performing at the Ameris Bank Amphitheater tonight. This is WABE Atlanta. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Rock and Roll Hall of Famers Hall and Oates will perform this evening at Ameris Bank Amphitheater in Alpharetta in honor of their return to Georgia. We'll listen back to my conversation from 2018 with John Oates. We were in studio talking about his solo album, Arkansas. Here, John explains the title of the album. There is a little town called Wilson, Arkansas. It's about 30 miles northwest of Memphis, right on the other side of the Mississippi River. And at one time, it was one of the largest cotton plantations in America, uh, producing a very high quality of cotton and um, something. I didn't really know about it. was invited out there to do kind of a private show in the middle of the, the cotton fields, basically. And... Uh, Went out there with my band. We played a show, and that evening we walked out into the cotton fields uh, along the banks of the Mississippi in in the moonlight. And it was really almost, uh, you know, it was this, uh, somehow I got the feeling that this great American music tradition that emanated in the deep south came up through the delta and along the you know on the mississippi river and actually along highway 61 which also runs through wilson uh i felt like i was in the vortex of this great american musical tradition and it inspired this uh, song which i of course uh, used as a title song for the album and really the, the original song arkansas is not uh is not really what the album's about. It's it's putting myself into this great American music tradition, inserting myself. But the, the, most of the music comes from the 1920s and 1930s. Hmm. What would you like to perform for us? We oh. heard the guitar in the background. It's <laughs> sure. So well, you know, I'm always a little more comfortable with the guitar in my hands. Um, well, the the album was inspired by Mississippi John Hurt, who was a, a Piedmont Delta. He wasn't really a uh, like a Delta bluesman, uh, even though he's sometimes uh, mislabeled that. He uh, he came from the hill country, played a little bit more in a ragtime style, and he was one of my childhood heroes. When I started the project, I wanted to just play a few of his songs and um, then realize. I had this revelation that I wonder what these same songs that were so associated with just guitar and voice would sound like if they were performed by a band. So I assembled a very unique, uh, eclectic band, and we played them that way. But today we're back to basics, and um, this is kind of a Mississippi John Hurt version of a song called Stack O' Lee. Everybody but you afraid of Staggerlee. He's a bad man. Cruel old Staggerlee. Billy Delines, old Staggerlee. Now, please don't take my life. I got three children and darling, lovely wife. You a bad man. Cruel old Staggerlee. I don't care about your children. I don't care about your wife, no. I'm gonna take your life I'm 
Listening to that, um, I could feel the inspiration you took out on that experience in the former cotton field and, and just, I don't know, the thickness of the air, the humidity, and who knows what spirits. The mojo. The mojo. The mojo of the, of the, of the, of the American South and, and this incredible music that has become an export and one of our finest, I would say, and, and gentlest exports to the rest of the world. Indeed. Your love of the blues is apparent on past albums, past solo albums you've made. Mm-hmm. This one feels rootsier, if that's a word. Um, was that the aim when you went into the studio? It, the, the, this project was an, uh, was a, a, a blessed and happy accident. I honestly, I, I just wanted to record some Mississippi John Hurt songs, very similar to what I just played. But then I thought, well, it's been done before, and I'll never do it as well as the original. And I thought that's when I, I chose the band, and that's when I brought the band in the studio, and, and it was an experiment. But from the moment we, we we cut the first track, in fact, the song I just played was the first track we cut. Oh. And my engineer turned to me and said, "Man, he goes, I don't know what this is, but keep doing it, because <laughs> the band the band gave it a texture and a and a and and in a way a little bit more of a contemporary feel, but but yet still true to the to the original authentic spirit of the music. So it's really a you know I'm bringing to bear my 50 years of recording experience and this you love. were three when you started recording yes that's right lois i love you <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah but it, it really i've been making records my whole life and i thought well you know this is this is really the sum total of of where i was as a child and where i am today as a, as, a, as obviously an older man john oates of the rock and roll hall of famers hall and oates his solo album is called arkansas the duo Hall and Oates performed tonight at Ameris Bank Amphitheater in Alpharetta. 
with this beautiful outdoor weather, you can enjoy some free improv shows outdoors by the ensemble at Dad's Garage as part of the Elevate Festival. Improv artists will perform this weekend in the parking lot at Dad's Garage Theater. They'll also unveil a community mural honoring the 50th anniversary of Atlanta Pride. The mural was done in partnership with the Canadian Consulate. Atlanta artist Avery Hardin, also known as Earth Mama, created the mural featuring images of Atlanta's legacy of support for the LGBTQ plus community. The mural can be viewed on the side of Dad's Garage Theater facing Bradley Street. The unveiling will be Sunday at 2 p.m. And while you're outside enjoying beautiful weather, keep in mind that free outdoor concerts by the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra are back at Piedmont Park. You're invited to bring your blanket and chairs and enjoy beautiful music under the stars Tuesday, September 28th. This year's performance in the park will be led by ASO Associate Conductor Jerry Ho and will feature Associate Concertmaster Justin Bruns. The program includes musical favorites such as An American in Paris by Gershwin and dances from Bernstein's West Side Story. The symphony concert will take place on Oak Hill in the southwest corner of Piedmont Park at 7 p.m. Tuesday. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Catch an encore broadcast tonight at 9, Monday at 11 a.m., the comedian, actress, and author Phoebe Robinson will be my guest. She'll tell us about her new book, Please Don't Sit on My Bed in Your Outside Clothes. Wishing you a safe and good weekend. And thanks for listening to WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org donate and become a member right now. And thank you.